The Men Podcast, episode 17 with Joe Roeder here of The Reds Fly Shop. So today we're going to do some really good question and answers. I'm going to touch on a little fishing that I did over the last couple of days, give a few pointers, tips that I learned when I was out there, uh, especially relevant for you local guys or folks fishing big western rivers. And uh, I'm going to hit on some news topics and uh, some other stuff. So we'll see. Uh, huh. Well, I'm sure I'll chase a few rabbits down a few holes and such. Um, as is. Well, let's talk uh, fishing. I managed to sneak out for a couple of hours. And uh, our conditions here right now are absolutely ideal for uh, late winter, early spring fishing. But we got kind of this almost bizarre warming trend. Uh, it's been like in the you know, 50 degrees here. Normally in late January, we could be, you know, five degrees. Uh, so it's been really benign temperatures. Most of the snow is gone and uh, it really feels much more like March fishing than late January. I uh, checked the water temperatures. Uh, the water temperature is about 42 degrees, which that's really adequate uh, for springtime trout fishing. 42 is uh, borderline warm. Uh, our Squala Stonefly Hatch, it's a, you can go Google that if you want. I spell it S-K-W-A-L-A, but that's going to be our first major hatch of the year. And usually that's the water temperature we're looking for, and we're seeing adults hatching and uh, beginning to see a little bit of dry fly fishing. Now, that's not going to happen right away, nor am I going to pretend it, it is as much as I'd like to fantasize about some February dry fly fishing. Probably not happen until March here. Uh, but my point is, uh, warm water, uh, good fishing right now. Uh, I did really well. I only fished for about two hours and I landed six trout, um, which I thought was pretty darn good, um, especially for being a little bit rusty. Uh, you know, the other thing when it pertains to hatches, because that's the other thing is, is the outfitter, you have to shake the crystal ball or more like a magic eight ball, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> People are always asking, you know, when's the hatch going to be? I'm like, let me shake the magic eight ball. And it says, uh, likely soon. <laughs> uh, so the length of day has a lot to do with it, despite what water temperatures might be. We might have really good early spring water temperatures, but length of day has a tremendous amount to do with insect hatches and triggering that hatch. So uh, we got to keep waiting, folks. Uh, it's not going to happen right away. So my fishing, uh, squalor stonefly nymphs are going to be, uh, you know, that was my, eh, I didn't really count it up, but I uh, got about half my fish on a squalor stonefly nymph. Uh, I really like a black cone head 20 incher. Uh, it's just a fly I've always grown to really like. So black cone, black cone head 20 incher, you can see that on the Reds online store. I think it makes one of the most killer squalor nymphs out there. And the other one was on the worm. Uh, pink and uh, red San Juan worm. I think it was pink and red. Pink and red, pink and brown. Uh, either way, it was pink. Pink San Juan worm. And I did not get real creative, and I didn't even lose a fly. Uh, but I indicator fished. I've been dabbling with this Euro nymphing thing, which I really, really like. But uh, I had a nymph rod all set up with an indicator, and that's what I did. Um, but some tips. Uh, if you're heading out here in the next couple of weeks, I've fished cold water a lot, and I would call anything under about 45 degrees cold. Uh, cold water, I'm always shocked by how slow a water some of these fish will be living in, especially this time of year. So uh, just because it feels warm outside doesn't mean those fish have adjusted and really moved out into the riffles and the skinnier, faster water. They're still looking for what I call a thermal refuge. Uh, they have to have some type of depth protect them. 
some type of slow water, it's much easier for them to economize energy right now than it is to go chase it down. So you're looking for pretty distinct holding lies and water that I would say is slower than a walking speed. So if it meets those criteria, uh, you're off to a good start there. Uh, but for me, our, we are recovering uh, from a lot of snowmelt. The river had uh, spiked a couple of days ago, not real high. Uh, but it had spiked and gotten a little off color uh, earlier in the week, and now it's settled down quite a bit. But we still have some type of uh, rain or snow melt influence. We had a little bit of rain over the top of snow. So it's it's essentially just runoff, but it's warm runoff. And uh, so the warm works quite effectively uh, in those situations. Now, if we get a couple of hard freezes and a couple of cold nights, the warm game totally shuts down, and you're going to be back to prospecting with pretty standard mayfly nymphs, caddis larva type of stuff. So anyway, that's the report. Uh, be looking for uh, dry fly fishing, not really to start until about early March, as much as we'd like it to start earlier. And a few people will catch fish earlier, at least uh, in the Yakima River Canyon and in many rivers throughout the West. That's kind of the, they operate on a fairly similar uh, time frame. Uh, so got to go out fishing. Hope those tip, hopefully those tips help uh, other additional information. I really like a yarn indicator uh, this time of year when I am indicator fishing. Uh, and I say when I am because I'm starting to dabble with that Euro nymph game and I'm liking it. Uh, and one of my questions today is going to be about that. But I really like yarn indicators for subtle takes in slow water. I think it, it, it your, your bite to hookup ratio goes up dramatically when operating under the sensitivity of that yarn indicator. So there's my little fishing report for you did not fish streamers. Uh, streamers, I'm sure, would be quite effective, uh, especially pre-spawn fish. Love a big streamer. Um, rainbows really have a hankering to eat some sculpin uh, before they do their spawning thing here later in the spring, and they're really looking to build weight and be aggressive. So streamers can be real effective. I just didn't do it. I had an infrared set up with an indicator. I was lucky to get out, uh, and uh, we're prepping pretty hard for sportsman shows and some travel stuff we have coming up. Uh, and I'm really trying to get my chores done so I can go guiding hard uh, come spring and summer. So I've just been kind of living on borrowed time when it comes to getting out on the water. Um, but it was great to get out. Uh, okay, so a couple of orders of business, and then I'm going to answer some questions. Uh, we've got Red's Rendezvous 9 coming up April 20th, 21st, and 22nd. You guys have got to set those dates aside on your calendar, especially the 21st. It's going to be awesome. Uh, there's going to be all sorts of stuff for the general outdoor enthusiast there. Uh, men, women, kids, families, everybody's having a great time. Lots of neat stuff there. In addition to lots of professional fly fishing seminars and clinics, and by the way, all the events on Saturday are free. Uh, it's a great excuse to come visit this part of the Northwest for the weekend, even if you're from out of state. It's a great experience. Come enjoy the event for the weekend and do some fishing while you're here. And uh, in the next month, we're going to be posting lots of little opportunities for clinics, both on Friday afternoon and Sunday, that are going to be in addition to the free event uh, on Saturday. So keep your eyes peeled from that. Just heard from my good friend Ryan Lampers uh, at uh, Hunt Harvest Health. Uh, he's a former fly fishing guide, former pro guide, and uh, now he works in another industry, but uh, his real passion is anything hunting and food preservation and essentially fitness and organic health. And he's going to be here with his doctor wife, Doc Hillary, and they're going to be at the rendezvous again this year 
doing a really cool presentation on food preservation. Uh, just teaching us all how to eat clean, live clean, preserve food, all that wild game or organic veggies that you might be growing in your garden. Uh, they're just an awesome couple. Uh, make sure to check out their podcast, uh, Hunt and Harvest Health, and their website, huntandharvesthealth.com, I believe is the URL. And uh, check out Ryan's Instagram page, uh, to Healthy Hunter. That's S-T Healthy Hunter on Instagram. I follow him there. But uh, just a super great dude, cool wife, and uh, we're looking forward to having them back here. So check them out as well. So uh, the other thing, uh, I was on a podcast, a hunting-related podcast, last week uh, with my friend Dan Staten. Uh, if you're into big game hunting or fitness uh, or just here want to hear what I have to say about about hunting, uh, check out the Elk Shape podcast. And uh, I was on there, and uh, check out what Dan's doing, doing uh, at the Elk Shape podcast. I I think that's worth listening to, uh, especially if you're uh, curious about big game hunting or getting into big game hunting. And I just added, uh, for any saltwater tropical fans, just added another week for 2019 to Christmas Island. Uh, I'm not sure which one of the, the guides is going to host that one yet, my 2019 schedule is kind of maxed, uh, but I added a week. We booked 2018 completely full. That trip is like a super good value. Uh, it's 27.90 per angler, and I hope they hold that pricing. It, if it goes up, it'll be just a very marginal amount uh, for 2019. But you get six days of fishing where you're going to walk yourself into the ground. I mean, you're just going to fish and fish and fish and fish until you can fish no more. Uh, it's such a good value. It's one-to-one guide-to-angler ratio. So you've got your own guide. You're going to hike the, the flats on Christmas Island, fishing your brains out, catching lots of fish, having an awesome time, exploring a really neat part of the world, and uh, the value is just immense. That is by far the best you know raw value on any trip I've ever been on when it comes to just pure fishing. So uh, you can really fish until you drop. The guides there work super hard, and uh, I can't say enough good stuff about it. But January 8th through the 15th, uh, you know, email me, joe at redsflyshop.com, uh, with any inquiries about that, and I'll, I'll help set your trip up for you. Uh, that, and we launched our annual spring Squala special trip today. Uh, that's $2.99 for a guide a boat. And come on out, go fishing with us. It's an unbelievably good deal. All our guides are starving and hungry from a long winter of unemployment. So come out and support the guides. If you want to stay one day, one night, it's $4.49. And that's for two people. So it's a, it's a killer deal. Okay, now that I got my infomercial out of the way, let's do some question and answers. I love these things uh, because they're real questions from real people. So... Uh, the first question is from Brandon H and his question says, Euro check nymphing, when and where do you do it on the yak and the best types of water to look for when fishing? And is there types of water slash conditions to avoid? Okay. So I'll just read the whole thing and then we'll dissect this. Is the weight of the anchor fly extremely heavy where you have to keep it off the bottom or can it be lighter? So it rolls more, but you have less connection to the fly. It is hard to judge when you are far enough down without hanging up. Are there any tips for seeing, sensing where flies are? Thanks, guys. Uh, Brandon, like me, uh, is kind of new to the Eurocheck nymphing thing. Uh, just because I get to fish more, I likely get to fish more than Brandon. Very few people get to fish as much as I do. So I can say that pretty safely. Uh, I've gotten, I wouldn't say good at it, but I'm proficient and I understand it and I, I'm not bad at it. Uh, 
So I, I can answer all these questions. It's really been kind of an odyssey for me starting this Euro Nymph thing. Uh, I got the Lance Egan, Devin Olson, uh, modern nymphing DVD, uh, which we don't sell that. So this isn't a sales pitch, but you want to learn about Euro Nymphing, get that DVD. Uh, so the Devin Olson DVD on modern nymphing is spectacular. Uh, can't say enough good stuff about it. So I've watched that from start to finish a couple of times. So now I'm pretty much an expert. Not. Uh, I have gone out and taken my licks, and it's hard. Um, and uh, I can address, you know, some of my successes and failures in a lot of these questions. But uh, for me, the best types of water to look for when fishing, uh, I've done better in, in any type of water where I can get into chop because I can get closer to the fish. Uh, for Euro-style nymphing, we're not using any indicators. We're using pretty much a direct connection to the fly, but we're dead drifting the fly on a long piece of light tippet. And I've done a little bit better in water, I'd say. If it's much deeper than about waist deep where the fish are, I'm having a little bit harder time getting those fish. Uh, I've gotten pretty good at getting them into that knee to thigh deep stuff. If it gets much deeper than that, uh, I'm struggling a little bit, Brendan. So if I'm personally heading out, I'm looking for stuff that's you know waist deep or shallower uh, with a little bit of chop moving about a walking speed. And I'm going to fish that piece of water from the bottom to the top and I'm generally going to fish inside seams where I'm standing in the slower water working out to a little bit faster seam. So uh, as far as water to avoid, I'm not as good in the big deep pools at this point. I do a little bit better with indicators in the big deep pools. So hopefully that helps. Uh, um, definitely water to avoid. I don't do as good in the big deep pools. So the next part of this, this question was, is the weight of the anchor fly extremely heavy? Um, we're, and I'll forgive any, uh, grammatical errors cause I'm sure Brandon was probably on his phone and that's part of the reason I do these podcasts that I don't have to worry about the order of my words here. But essentially it says, is the weight of the anchor fly extremely heavy? Uh, and you know, how do you keep, or do you have to keep it off the bottom so that it can be lighter and it rolls more? I run mine pretty heavy. Um, and I mean, heavy can be a relative term, but I run a CDC pheasant tail with a jig head hook, number 12, almost exclusively for my anchor fly. Uh, I don't spend a lot of time tying flies other than I do a few seminars at the trade shows and stuff to sh show off a couple of my you know, signature patterns. But I don't sit down and, and whip out a, a, a dozen nymphs anymore. Um, my time is, you know, you, time gets consumed. Uh <laughs> But if you can tie anything uh, in that number 12 range with the appropriate tungsten bead would work good. But I run that as my anchor fly almost exclusively. We have one called the yellow spot, one called the CDC jig head pheasant tail. So if you can jump online and you can look at those or order a couple of those, you'll have a pretty good bearing. And I run that fly almost exclusively if my lead fly because it's a jig head hook and it does it does hit the bottom a lot, Brendan, but I can I can. I can put downstream tension on it and pull it through. And I always run that as my, my anchor fly. And I'm very familiar with what it feels like. And I think there's a lot of value to familiarity. I don't change weights a lot on that. So that's the fly that I've had a lot of success with. Uh, I do have a lot of connection uh, to that fly because it does sink quite well. Especially when I run 5X fluorocarbon all the way from my... And I'll describe my setup from my tipper ring all the way to that fly... And then I junction in a lighter fly, usually um, just above that, about about 16 inches or so. Um, so my setup, uh, the the third tier of this question uh, says, 
it is hard to judge when you're far enough down without hanging up. Are there any tips for sensing seeing where the flies are? Uh, it's a really good question. So, and Brendan may be setting his leader up pretty similar, but I'm running like 15 feet of 30 pound maxima because fly line is pretty much pointless uh, other than it's a formality with a Euro Nymph setup, I found. I do almost all point blank fishing and high sticking. And I'm going to do a whole separate podcast on why Euro Nymphing doesn't suck because it sounds like it super sucks when you listen to that and you're like, that doesn't sound like fun. I don't even get the fly cast. The connection you get to these fish when they bite is awesome. It's super addictive. It's really fun. It's incredibly effective. And for those of you that haven't tried it before, it's something new. Prepare to be humbled. Uh, it's a great challenge and endeavor for me. You know, I've gone through all these different kind of ebbs and flows of my angling, you know, skills. And Euronymphing is one that I really lacked up until this last, you know, fall. I decided, oh, I'm going to take this head on and give it a shot. And I'm definitely improving. Uh, got a long ways to go, but... Uh, but improving, but it's really addictive. Uh, but I run 15 feet of 30 pound maxima because I don't want that fly line to butt section connection going in and out my top eyelets. Uh, and then from there, I run that all the way down to uh, what we call, I guess the whole thing is going to be called a cider. Uh, not like cider, like apple cider, but cider like, hey, I have it in my sights, like a cider. And I'll use backing. Uh, fly line, 20 pound fly line backing, and I'll use about 18 inches of chartreuse or, or yellow, and then I'll run about six inches of bright orange. So then my cider is two colors. So a uh, total of say, you know, 20 to 24 inches. Uh, it, it really doesn't matter what it is exactly. That's just so that you can see uh, what your flies are doing. And then below that bottom one, I use a Rio tippet ring uh, tied to that bottom piece of backing. And, uh, and then from that tippet ring, I'll run, say, four feet of 5X fluorocarbon to my anchor fly, and then a little piece of 6X tied in a, a Y junction, a triple surgeon's junction out to a lighter fly. Uh, but the point here is we have that cider there in the middle, and that cider is going to tell me, depending on which way that's leaning or ticking or hesitating, I'm going to be able to see if the fly is ticking the bottom, if it's still sinking, or if I'm detecting a strike. And I'm also going to be able to measure depth because I know I've got four feet from, or three feet or five feet, whatever it is, whatever the depth is between that tippet ring and my fly, I can measure the depth. So if I can see that I'm fishing in 18 inches of water, I'm going to keep that cider, you know, another two feet out of the water. And I'm still going to watch that cider because it's brightly colored and I can see the behavior of my fly. So without getting too in-depth, hopefully that answers some of your questions, Brandon, on what water to avoid and, and some other tips and such too. Keep it up, man. I know you're super passionate about that. And uh, Curtis was actually just talking about the time you guys spent together today. Said it was uh, said it was really great. So uh, we're going to be doing some more of those Euro-style nymphing clinics like we did for Brandon uh, this upcoming year. So just watch our website for those to pop up. We've got a, we got a couple of us on staff here that would love to, to give you the basics. So next question is from Doug B. Uh, Doug says, I bought my first drift boat this fall and plan on doing Yakima a lot next year and wondered when do you, when do you know when to anchor or not? Just don't want to do something I will regret. And, uh, the Yakima, like a lot of big western rivers, uh, there are places to anchor in a drift boat and places to definitely not anchor. And 
Uh, first off, our river tends to run really fast and furious uh, during the summer months, which is also the most popular time uh, to be out uh, floating uh, and fishing. So what that means is if you're going to anchor your boat and you're in that big swift current, if that anchor is to be dropped and then maybe drag along the bottom a little bit, that anchor can then become seized in between some rocks. And the next thing that can potentially happen is that rope is very strong. It's not going to break, but it can actually pull the transom of that drift boat down underwater, filling up the boat, possibly capsizing it, swamping the boat. So I've seen it happen. Uh, never been in the boat when that's happened, but I've seen it happen to another guide uh, on the river. I mean, it can happen pretty easily. So people have lost boats out here doing that. So that's what his question's related to. So general rules of thumb, uh, inside bends are going to be safer, uh, you know, within casting distance of the bank, for sure. The bank has slower, shallower water, unless it's an outside corner. Uh, outside bends are a very bad place to anchor. That's where the larger boulders and larger debris typically gets deposited. Larger debris is what swallows your anchor. So uh, definitely stay away from the outside bends. And I try to tell people, you, it depends on water clarity, but typical summertime water clarity, uh, if you can see the bottom, that probably means you're less than four feet deep, and that's a good thing. So shallower water, walking speed water is good, inside corners. Um, also, if you hang up an anchor, you know, make sure, well, one of the first things you do when you get in a drift boat, just in general, anybody listening to this that has a boat, is make sure that your anchor line is, if you got into a jam where your anchor hung up in a log pile or, or a boulder pile or something bad happened where you needed to get rid of it, that you could e release your anchor rope either by stepping on the, the foot control cleat or letting it out by hand, you could let out rope fast. Don't let your rope get tangled up. Uh, if you put a knot in the end, and that's fine, you can put a knot in the end, but don't pull that knot tight. Make sure that you're able to untie that knot in the end and jettison and get rid of that anchor quick. It's just a great tip. Uh, you know, when boats get capsized and bad stuff happens, having that anchor down and out is often a bad thing. It doesn't let the boat roll upright and some other things. So you may find yourself in a situation you got to get rid of that anchor, but... Yeah, hopefully those 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 tips help Doug. You know, avoid the outside corners, focus on slow water casting distance from the bank, and also when you go to anchor, um, give it some good backstrokes to slow that boat down uh, near near a stop before you release the anchor. And as the anchor is settling in, don't let the boat free drag the anchor downstream. Uh, great question. Um, all right, so. Next question is from Matthew R. Uh, rainy season trout fishing. Fishing in the rain. I like the sound of that. So rainy season trout fishing for us is really going to be, say, you know, February through, you know, May for us. Springtime here. Probably the same for pretty much everywhere else in the northern hemisphere. Uh, what tactics, presentations during and post rainfall works best? Uh, I actually hit on those, coincidentally, a uh, little bit in the front end of this uh podcast but uh fantastic question san juan worms number one trout like worms uh and those worms uh you know rivers erode soil along the banks uh it happens rivers morph and move it's natural um you know we don't need to blame farmers or loggers or anybody else for you know worms being in the river soil erosion takes place every high water event every rain event it's going to happen rivers move around trout like worms so 
Uh, post-rainfall, uh, worms are a really good idea, and I truly believe that there's some type of nutrient or those worms are holding something the trout want because there are just times when they eat that darn worm like crazy. They pass up everything else, and there's not much rhyme or reason for it. They just need something like that. And I've seen it with other insects and other bugs, too, and certain types of terrestrials in the late summer where I, I really feel like there's an enzyme or something in there that the trout really need. So uh, the other one is uh, dead-drifting little black woolly buggers, man, leeches. Uh, and also, that little black woolly bugger, man, that thing does the hula dance, and it becomes every trout's greatest fantasy. It's a, it's a leech. It's a sculpin. Uh, it's a nightcrawler. It's a stonefly nymph. Uh, it's a crayfish. It's whatever that trout wants it to be. So, yeah, dead drifting uh, black woolly buggers in that size 10 and 12 range, uh, even bigger, even that size 8 range. If you're fishing trophy trout, can't you can hardly have a black woolly bugger that's too big. So, uh, be think of black buggers uh, in that that you know if we're talking post rainfall, it's probably still cloudy, dark days, dark flies. It's a great strategy. So. Uh, yeah, hopefully those help. Uh, and if you're in really, really muddy conditions, make sure you're targeting almost exclusively inside bends uh, or below islands. Uh, what happens with the gravel bar island is that water has to push up under the bar and the water coming out from the backside of a gravel bar or an island is generally spring water and or it's filtered. And those trout will sit in that slack water below those islands in really muddy conditions. So remember that tip that is that's a big one uh took a lot of years of guiding to really figure that one out so uh all right uh eddie p wants to know if we're going to get on the stitcher app uh eddie probably not right now anyway uh i'm just barely getting these things out i'm doing this <laughs> in addition i know it's not that hard but i record it directly on podbean so that i can just upload it really quick and get through them so Maybe, maybe not. Uh, hopefully it's working out for you and you can stick with the pod bean deal uh, at least a little longer. So thanks for, for listening. Uh, Pat B, uh, he's talking about lake fishing for trout and bass. Lake fishing, man, one of the long forgotten fisheries. Uh, man, lake fishing used to be so popular when I started fly fishing in the late 90s. And uh, at least in this area, it's really, it's not as trendy as uh, river fishing anymore. But uh, how to read the water? Uh, what fly to use and when. Um, first thing, obviously trout and bass are, you know, completely different critters. Uh, but they, yeah, and I guess to understand those two two critters and why they're immediately, we'll kind of dissect that into two pieces, is uh, bass are generally ambush predators. Uh, bass, when they're hunting, are generally sitting still, they're laid up, they're holding tight. In the evenings, low light, they'll kind of get cruise. yes, they'll get cruised and they'll move a little bit. But generally... Uh, they're going to be ambush predators sitting still, so we are going to have to move to find bass. You know, we're going to work an area, move on, work an area, move on. Uh, trout, on the other hand, are going to be circulatory critters, and they're going to be cruising on what I call a mule circuit. So whatever uh, the conditions happen to be, uh, if the the there's usually some type of thermocline in the lake, and there's some type of depth that the trout most of them are going to be feeding or active in a particular depth of water because the water temperature and, and that water temperature is most favorable in a certain amount of depth. So one thing I try to do, um, I mean, I could do a whole podcast just on this, but with bass, I'm, I'm going to work structure. And with bass, I generally tend to fly fish smaller bodies of water for bass. Um, I stay off the bass boat lakes, and the big waters, the big reservoirs for bass. 
And when I'm in those smaller lakes, there's usually no shortage of structure. There's reeds, there's weed beds, lily pads, a rocky point, a log. So I'm going to work my bass on pretty obvious structure that I could see coming up outside of the water. And, um, you know, bass will also sit at a particular depth as well. But my I'm ba- also bass fishing exclusively from a boat too. So it's rare for me to bass fish on foot. It just doesn't work that much or work that very well. Because in a boat, you can cast in towards the shore and put your presentation up against the shore. It doesn't work as good fishing from the from the bank or being on foot. So in a boat, uh, I'm going to work the shoreline, work very particular structure, and I'm going to start with poppers. If I think the, the water temperatures and the conditions uh, will yield fish on poppers, I'm always starting with poppers. Uh, I can cover more water, make more noise, and uh, it's really exciting. And I can cover the entire water column from one spot. If I don't get them on poppers, I'm then going to switch to a weighted fly and I'm going to work a countdown method where I cast into the structure. Lots of bass eat the fly while it's sinking. So an accurate delivery right where you want it to be that allows the fly to, to impact and fall in a very natural fashion where the line doesn't slap the water. The fly doesn't hit too hard. It's going to hit with some authority because it's weighted. Uh, but I'm going to count and I'm going to go 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, 3, 1,000. And then I'm going to begin my strip at, you know, various rates and different things. I'm going to try to deduce what speed and what depth the bass are in. The same are going to be true for trout on that, the second tips. But I'm going to use a countdown method to try to decipher or deduce where uh, in the water column those critters are living. Once I figure out what part of the water column they're living in, chances are most of the fish in the area are going to be living at that similar depth. So, that's a short answer. You know, I could dedicate a lot more time to, uh, with, with lake fishing. I'm generally going to be using intermediate sinking lines for lake fishing. There's a bunch of, you know, we sell a bunch of them at Reds. There's, you know, the Aqualux is a great line. Uh, the Rio Outbound series and the intermediate sinking heads are really great lake lines. I really like those. Uh, we won't get into chronomid fishing, but I'll touch on chronomid fishing for trout. Uh, I've got a video or two, uh, Pat, that you can look at on YouTube uh, re- in regards to coronavid fishing that kind of explains what I'm talking about if you're not real familiar with it. Same with coronavid fishing. We want to deduce what depth the fish are at first. Uh, they're generally not quite as... Depth is more important than fly. Uh, we need to figure out how deep they are, and then we can start to capitalize on you know that knowledge by switching flies and uh, trying to improve our our hookup ratio at that point once we, we get a fish or two. So... Uh, as far as flies go, bass, I start with poppers, and then I work towards uh, different flies, uh, generally right to a, what's called a jawbreaker. You can see that on our online store if you want a picture of that fly, uh, or crayfish patterns. Uh, for trout, I'm generally going to start uh, with a thin mint, uh, a thin mint or a twin lake special on an intermediate line. If I were going lake fishing tomorrow for trout, and it was in a fishing derby for a million bucks, uh, that's what I'm fishing, is that right there. Intermediate line. Thin Mint or Twin Lake Special. Same thing. Uh, see that on our website, uh, too. Okay, uh, similar question. And uh, last question uh, for the podcast is by Eric uh, M. And he's just asked, he says, spring bass fishing here in central Washington. Uh, Eric, depending on where at, where you're living in central Washington, there are different options. But uh, generally, smallmouth, uh, from my experience, or, you know, they, they're more successful in cold water. You're generally going to start with smallmouth, and that can start as early as March. Uh, probably thinking about sinking lines, sinking flies. Uh, Banks Lake is, you know, a hot spot for smallmouth. 
Uh, the Columbia River, I mean, there's so many places to go. The Columbia River is another hot spot for smallmouth. Uh, this is more locally relevant, uh, but uh, Evergreen Reservoir out near Quincy is a great spot for uh, smallmouth too. Uh, I'm going to encourage all, everyone listening to really utilize this, your whatever state you live in, utilize your state Department of Fish or Department of Fish and Wildlife's uh, website and the resources they have. Um, there's a real push towards celebrating all these public lands we have. And it seems like the states are really following suit, at least Washington State. They're doing a great job of giving us maps, resources, access, uh, and the knowledge to be able to utilize all the public lands and public resources. So, uh, Eric, check uh, WDFW's, I think it's called the Go Fish web, you know, portion of their website. And they've got some really, really good information on there about where to go. Start with smallmouth early. Uh, I've had amazing popper fishing for smallmouth starting in late April. Uh, and then uh, the largemouth fishing is going to be more kind of mid-April on. So uh, anyway, good luck to you. hope you do great. Uh, get into some bass out there. I think bass are such a killer species. Uh, what I love about bass, I'll just kind of finish with this, is they hit hard. They're very smart. There's a reason they tournament fish for bass because bass play very fair. If the angler does it right... The bass responds. If the angler does it wrong, uh, you're going to see it in the results. Uh, the bass bass can be very picky. They can be very tricky. But when you figure it out, figure out what those critters are biting, how fast to move the fly, and where they're living, you can really uh, unlock some great fishing. So, hey, thanks for listening very much. Uh, in that that coupon code from last podcast is still active. That's podcast sixteen. Uh, you guys can use that for a couple more weeks. Uh, anyway. Appreciate you listening. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and check us out on redsflyshop.com slash blog.